Well, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse number 12. This is the fourth Sunday of Advent. We're going to look at Jesus as the last Adam. Listen to these words of Paul. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. I'm thankful the text doesn't stop there because that would be depressing. But move on, verse 13. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. If you have your Bibles, physical Bibles with you, or you have it open on your phone app, I would encourage you to highlight or underline God's gracious gift. We're going to talk about that today specifically in a little bit, but, but that is a key phrase that I think will, will bring even greater meaning uh, to you this morning. So God's gracious gift there in verse number 15. Um, And I totally lost, there we go. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. Verse 16, and the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift, how many are thankful for the free gift of God? Amen. God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man. Jesus Christ. As I pray this morning, I want to just ask you to pray with me. And I've already said this this morning, but I want, I want you to pray as I pray, asking God to give you hearts that are expecting and longing to encounter the presence of Jesus Christ this morning. So would you do that with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of worship today. We thank you um, that we can gather together Lord, whether it's in person or listening online in whatever venue, we thank you that we have an opportunity to hear the living, powerful word of God and to encounter the living presence of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray all across this room, myself included, I pray that in this moment that you would just allow our hearts to be expectant, our hearts to be longing to encounter and experience the presence of Jesus Christ this morning. And Lord, I pray that every person in this room, every person listening on live, online today, I pray that we would hear from you, that we would encounter and experience the presence of Jesus Christ in a very powerful and a very real way. And Lord, we pray, come, thou long-expected Jesus. Come and fill our hearts. Come and, and, and change and transform our lives. And Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that you would help me to speak this word that you've given to me. Help me to speak it clearly, with boldness, with simplicity. And God, as I pray every single week, help me to decrease and you to increase and be the focus of our time together today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you do have all of your Christmas shopping done and presents wrapped under the tree? Good for you all. Good for you. (laughs) One of these days, you all saw those hands. For those of us that don't, maybe we need to get a few tips from those folks here 
uh, in the room today. Well, I am looking forward to uh, celebrating Christmas with my family, certainly incur- uh, looking forward to celebrating with you guys this weekend. Again, a very special service that, that we have planned uh, for everyone, and so looking forward uh, to that. Today really marks uh, the final Sunday uh, of the Advent season. The last three weeks, we have explored the various names of Jesus. We looked at Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We looked at Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And last week, we unpacked the scripture from John chapter 14, verse 6, that Jesus Christ, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And today, we're going to explore and unpack this final name or this fourth name of Jesus, and it is Jesus Christ as the last Adam. This probably isn't a name that we hear talked about, preached about as often, but it's very key and very critical uh, to our salvation and our understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Now, in order to unpack this name, though, in order for us to get a glimpse of what it means for Jesus to be the last Adam, we have to return to the very beginning, to where everything really began, all the way back in Genesis in the Garden of Eden. Now, I'm not going to um, spend a lot of time, you know, walking through each book of the Bible. Don't get, don't become afraid or or nervous that that you know we're going to spend our time going from Genesis all the way to Romans. Um, I will end quickly, but but I want us to go all the way back to the beginning where the story really began. And in order for us to understand Jesus as the last Adam, we have to examine the creation story and the first Adam before we even take a look at the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the word becoming flesh, dwelling among us, and being named, as Paul refers to him as the last Adam. I think we all know, when you go back to the creation story, uh, Genesis chapter 1, we read the story of creation. Um, The heavens and the earth were created by God, and the plants and the animals and the vegetation, but it was on the sixth day that God created humanity. And if you recall, when God was finished, when he created Adam, and then he rested on the seventh day, remember, each day after creation, God said something like, it is good, it is good, it is good. At the end of the day, he, he kind of stepped back, he looked at his creation and, and realized that it was indeed good. But when he got done with the creation of humanity, Uh, His statement was slightly different. He looked at his creation of Adam and he said this on the sixth day, it is very good. He created man, as we know, in the image and the likeness of God. Just as a side note, and I say this because I want all of you, whether you're here in person listening online or maybe you have children or grandchildren or teenagers, they need to hear this and be reminded that our value and our worth is, is not rooted in what we accomplish. It's not rooted in what we have. It's not rooted in the relationships that we are in. Our value and our worth as human beings is rooted in the fact that every single one of us has been created in the image and likeness of God. If there is a message that, that our culture needs to hear today, it is that. We have become uh, distorted or confused. We, we think that, that if I accumulate enough stuff, if I have the right relationship, if, if I accomplish these things, if I get this promotion, then that will give me worth and value. And that might make you feel good temporarily, 
But the reality is that, that, that we have value and worth because we have been created by God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we have stamped on us his image. That's where our identity should lie. Now, this is not a message on, on identity or, or on our value and on our worth, but we need to be reminded of that. And folks, we need to be reminding those in our life, in our sphere of influence, that, that they're valuable, not because of what they've done or what they've accomplished or what they have, but they have been fearfully and wonderfully made by God. And that is a message uh, that our culture certainly needs to hear. Now, let me jump back into really the focus of this morning. Both the first and the last Adam, and I want you to hear this, both the first Adam, Adam himself, and the last Adam that is referring to Jesus, both of them contributed, contributed something special to the human race. And that's going to really be our focus this morning on this fourth Sunday of Advent. I want to begin just by simply talking about uh, the, the first Adam's contribution to the human race. Now, I want you to stick with me. I don't want anyone to, to leave because this is really the bad news first, and then I'm going to give you the good news later. But I want to talk, first of all, about the first Adam's contribution to the human race. First of all, Adam's sin, as we know from our text today in Romans chapter 5, Adam's sin, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam's sin brought forth a human race that is marked by shame and guilt. Now, I want to take you back to the creation story for just a moment. Look in Genesis chapter 2, and I want you to see uh, the difference here between these two verses. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, this is before um, Eve is even tempted. This is before sin enters into the equation. Uh, man has been created. Adam and Eve have been formed by God. And, and after that, that, that formation comes to a conclusion, we read these words at the end of chapter 2. It says, now the man and his his wife, they were both naked, but they felt no shame. Essentially, what, what the, the writer here is indicating to us is, is there was no shame, there was no guilt. They had perfect uh, communion and fellowship with God after this, after creation. Before sin entered into the equation, this is what that, that communion and fellowship looked like. There was no shame, there was no guilt that even entered into the equation. But then after sin comes into play, look at the, the change in their demeanor. Look at the change in their, uh, in their posture. It says at that moment, this is after they ate of the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat of. It says at that moment, their eyes were opened and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So what did they do? They sewed fig leaves. They were trying to cover themselves. They were trying to hide their shame and their guilt. They sewed fig leaves together and they covered themselves. This is a result of sin. This is a result of, uh, of Adam's first sin that brought forth a human race that has been marked by shame and guilt. Now, here's what I want you to see this morning regarding Adam's contribution to the human race. The human default now, because of sin, the human default has become running and hiding from the presence of God. Anytime that sin comes into the equation, what do we often do? Our default as human beings, when, when we sin, when we fall short, instead of running to God, we often hide from or run away from his presence because, because there is shame, because there's guilt, because we, we know we've messed up and we don't want to face what the, what the Father, the Creator, is going to bring up on us. And we see this to be true even for Adam and Eve in the garden. Look at this in chapter 3, verse 8. 
So this is after sin. They've eaten, they've eaten of the fruit. They've covered themselves now with fig leaves. And look at what happens. It says, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, they are still in the garden. It says, the man and his wife, they heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. And so what did they do? Instead of running to the Father, instead of running to God, what did they do instead? They hid from the Lord God among the trees. This is what sin does. Sin creates shame and guilt. And instead of running to God, we try to hide from the presence of God altogether. And so the human default, Adam's contribution is shame and guilt. And the human default now becomes running and hiding from God's presence. It also created in a desire in humanity to do what? To cover up our exposed self out of fear of what God would think. We see that in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 3. When sin entered the equation, what, what do Adam and Eve try to do? They try to cover up their sin. They try to hide it. They, they don't want to, to be exposed. They don't want God to see what they've done. They, they want to hide from his presence. They want to try to cover up that shame and guilt. And, and, and that's really the, the desire of humanity today. Every time we sin, there is this desire to try to cover it up so that it cannot be exposed. It's really the opposite of what David prays in Psalm. Um, David will say, you know, create in me a clean heart. Uh, later on in Psalms, David will say, you know, search me, know me, see if there's any wicked way in me. So he's, he's asking God, the Father, uh, to, to expose his heart so that it can be dealt with. But here we see because of sin, we see that there is this desire to cover up. So many today, because of sin, and maybe you know folks that have done this. Maybe you've been in this position before. But when sin enters the equation, so many run or hide from the presence of God. As they live their life overwhelmed with shame and with guilt. Instead of running to the Father and receiving the forgiveness and the free gift of salvation that's available, what do we do? Instead, we see this, this entire human race that, that flees from the presence of God. They, they hide, they're, they're, they're overwhelmed with their shame and they're with their guilt and they don't want it to be dealt with and so they try to run instead of dealing with that and it doesn't have to be that way. This then leads to those who are crushed by feelings of guilt and shame and what happens when we don't deal with those feelings is we make poor decisions and oftentimes, sometimes we even give up on life altogether. Adam's, Sin brought forth a human race marked by shame and guilt, but it also, secondly, Adam's sin opened the door for a human race that seeks to blame others and never take ownership of our own sin. I'm not going to ask for anyone to raise their hands here because I think we've all done it, uh, but anytime we've messed up, I mean, we're, we're quick as human beings to want to pass the blame. It's their fault. It's, it's not my fault. It's, it's, you know, my brother's fault or my sister's fault or, or my parents' fault. No one told me about that. We have this tendency to want to pass blame on to others. And this is what, this is what Adam did in the garden. Look at this in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 12. It says, the man replied, he's talking to God now, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate of it. Adam essentially is blaming two people here. He's blaming the woman in the first place for, for taking the fruit and giving it to him to eat, but he's also passing blame onto God. God, this is your fault. If you wouldn't have put this woman in the garden in the first place, then this wouldn't even have happened. So this is the tendency. This is the tendency for the human race in general is, is we, because of sin, we desire to pass the blame on to anyone else except 
ourselves. We don't want to take ownership. Adam blamed the woman that God placed with him. We tend to blame everything under the sun except our own decisions. Sometimes, like Adam, sometimes we even blame God. God, this is your fault. God, you created these people. God, you put me here. God, you, you, you are the one that did this. And so we, we pass blame, we pass the buck on to God instead of taking ownership ourself. We never take ownership of our own sin. This is Adam's, the first Adam's contribution. We also know that Adam's sin, it created a separation between the human race and God. Look at what happens in Genesis chapter three, verse 23. This is to me, probably one of the saddest verses um, in Scripture. Genesis 3, verse 23. So the Lord God, he banished them from the Garden of Eden. And he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. Now, you may look at that and say, that's not a huge deal. He banished them from the garden. They're still alive and they're having to work the ground. Well, this is essentially God is, is essentially banishing them from his own presence. A holy God cannot dwell with an unholy, sinful People. There is this separation that Adam, because of sin, the first Adam, because of sin, there is this separation that has been created between a perfect holy God and now an imperfect, sinful human race. Adam and Eve, they were banished from the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden really represented the, the beautiful, perfect presence of God. I mean, they, they had perfect intimacy, communion, and fellowship. They walked with God in the garden. They, they, they were able to talk with him. There was, a, there was a perfect unity that existed in the garden uh, that is like none other. But when sin entered the equation, they were banished from the garden. The presence of God, the perfect communion that they once had, had been marred, had been destroyed because of sin. They no longer could have an experience, perfect communion and fellowship with God. That intimacy was broken. Now, later on, and I'm thankful as you read through Scripture, hopefully you don't stop in Genesis. If you read in Exodus and Leviticus, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, you will see that God will, all the way leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son, God will make provisions. God will make a way for his people who have been banished from the presence of God, who have been banished from the garden. He does make provisions for his people to encounter his presence in some way. He does that by, first of all, he gives them the law. And, and, and by the giving of the law, they're able to have a, a relationship with God. Um, and, and he gives them prophets who are able to come and speak the word of God on their behalf. Uh, he will uh, institute sacrifices and offerings that can be offered or, or made so that there can be some type of relationship with God. They can experience him. But, but it was still imperfect until Jesus Christ came over 2,000 years ago to pay the ultimate sacrifice. That's why we talked about Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who does what? He takes away the sins of the world so we can have that perfect fellowship with him. And so he, he does make provisions, but because of sin, that, that intimacy, that communion, that fellowship, it has been marred and destroyed at least for a season. We also know that Adam's sin, it brought forth judgment, the curse of pain, sickness, and ultimately it brought forth death. We see that Paul speaks of how it brought forth condemnation and judgment. Look at Romans 5, verse 16. Hostil or for Adam's sin, listen very simply, Adam's sin led to what? Led to condemnation. Created hostility and conflict. That became part of the equation. 
Genesis chapter four, after sin, they're banished from the presence of God. They've been kicked out of the garden. Adam and Eve have sons, Cain and Abel, and the first murder occurs. Cain kills his brother, Abel. There's hostility and conflict that begins to arise as a result of sin. This is the contribution of the first Adam. Humanity would experience pain, disease, and sickness. That is a reality still in our context today. We do live in a fallen world where pain, sickness, and disease, all of those things do still exist, and that is a result of sin and the contribution of the first Adam. Humanity had to survive by working the ground. They were kicked out of the garden, and no longer could they experience the joys and the benefits of the Garden of Eden that God had created. Instead, they had to work tirelessly and work hard from the ground. There would be seasons where there would be no fruit that would come forth, but yet they still had to work hard. Both physical and spiritual death marked the human race. Genesis 3:19, the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made, for you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. So there is this promise of a physical death that will occur. We also see though in Romans 5 verse 12, it says when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone sin. That's not just talking about a physical death. It's talking about a spiritual death that will occur because of sin, separation from the presence of God. So as I consider the first Adam's contribution, I think, man, what a, what a contribution he made. What a special contribution that first Adam made. From our devotional book, Pastor Kevin, my dad, PK, I probably should have put Pastor Kevin on there. Um, I could have just put dad, but that would have been maybe even awkward too. I don't know. But, but this is what he said regarding the first Adam's contribution. It was a wasted opportunity that led to the promise of death for all. Now, that is the bad news. How many are still glad you're here today? Okay, <laughs> maybe a few less hands, but stick with me, all right? That is the bad news, but it's not the only or final news. There is good news. Paul reveals in his letters the contribution of another man, the last Adam. His contribution would exceed that of the first Adam, and it would reverse this process of spiritual death. One author wrote these words. He says, the inevitable process of death begun in Adam will be reversed by the equally inevitable process of bringing to life that was begun in Christ. He is the last Adam. I want to talk about, just for a few moments, and we'll be done this morning, I want to talk about the last Adam's contribution to the human race. And I pray that you will be encouraged by these words this morning. If you still have your Bibles open, Romans chapter 5, I want to read just one verse. I'm not going to read this whole section again, but I want to read verse 15 to you again. There is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But listen, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. He is the last Adam. I told you I want to talk about this grace gift this grace gift of God that is referred to in Romans 5, verse 15 and 16, this grace gift of God is indeed Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. Here's what I want you to see with this word gift. The word gift 
here used in Paul's words in Romans chapter 5, it's actually a Hellenistic word that often notes or refers to one's very best gift. So when you read those words in Romans 5, when it speaks, verse 15, when it says, there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift, this grace gift, what he is referring to is God's very best gift. There is a difference here. God gave us his very best. He gave us his son, Jesus. We read it in our Advent reading, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son. So God has given us his very best gift. Isn't that what the season of Christmas is all about? We gather together. It's not just about the presents that we open under the tree or the the songs that we sing. The reason that we gather for Christmas is we are celebrating the very best, the greatest gift. It's the grace gift of Jesus Christ himself. And that is why we come together every Christmas season to celebrate this most precious gift, and it is God's very best gift. It's the gift of his son. This overwhelming grace gift is what the true meaning of Christmas is all about. Not going to really spend a lot of time here, but but I want you to also keep this in mind. The, The virgin birth, that doctrine is very essential to the whole Christmas story. It's essential to our salvation in Christianity. We cannot deny the virgin birth, that Jesus Christ was born of of a virgin because Jesus Christ, in order to pay the penalty of sin to be the perfect spotless lamb of God, he had to bypass the sinful seed of man which is why the virgin birth doctrine is key and essential. And there are folks out there that say, well, it's not, you know, it's more of a a matter of opinion. No, it's not. It's a matter of dogma. It's important. It's vital because it upholds the the Christian faith. The same is true when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus. We we cannot deny uh, the resurrection, the reality of it, because it too is essential to our faith. Because here's the reality. If Christ is still dead and he has not been raised to life. Folks, here's the reality for you and me. We're still dead in our sins. But I'm thankful for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this Christmas season, we are reminded of God's very, very best gift that he gave us. He gave us his son, Jesus Christ. He came, he was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died As a substitute, he took our place on the cross. He was raised to life. He is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, and we are able to worship freely. We are able to have hope and have the assurance of eternity in his presence because of this very best gift that has been given to us by God. This grace gift of God, Jesus Christ, is all the more powerful and greater than the contribution of the first Adam. And this is what I want you to see this morning. The the first Adam made a contribution that that brought sin, condemnation, death, sickness, pain, and, and separation from God. But the contribution of the last Adam, Jesus Christ, is so much greater than the contribution of the first Adam. The last Adam brought justification and righteousness, nullifying the terrible result of condemnation. Look at what Paul says in Romans 5, 16. It says, and the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift, what does it do? It leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. We also know that Christ's 
free gift, it is way more powerful than the contribution of the first Adam. One writer, Cranfield, said this. He said that one single misdeed should be answered by judgment. That is perfectly understandable. That the accumulated sins and guilt of all the ages should be answered by God's free gift. That is the miracles of miracles utterly beyond human comprehension. The free gift, the grace gift of Jesus Christ is way more powerful than the contribution of that first Adam. And thirdly, Christ's free gift, it offers life, eternal life, and abundant life now and for the future. Listen to what he says in verse 17. Paul says, For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it. Listen, all who receive this free gift will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Eternity in God's presence is possible for all who believe and receive the free, gracious gift of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the last Adam. This is, to me, one of the most encouraging points, and that is because of the gracious gift of Jesus Christ, you and I, we do not have to live our life now constantly defeated and constantly experiencing condemnation. It's very easy to live our life today with this mentality of woe is me and here's my circumstances. But the reality is if we have received the free gift of Jesus Christ, we can walk in the victory that belongs to us because of what Jesus has done. That doesn't mean that all of our, all of our, our, our woes are going to go away or our circumstances will disappear. But there is a sense, folks, as believers, as Christians who have received that free gift of Jesus Christ, we should, we should walk around differently than the world does with this mentality that, yes, though I'm experiencing pain and, and suffering and persecution, the reality is I am victorious in Jesus Christ. And we should live our lives with that mentality that we can walk in that victory. The victory is ours because of of Jesus. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. And probably one of my favorite verses later on in Romans 8, verse 34, who then, Paul says, who then is going to condemn us? No one, Paul says, for Christ Jesus, the only one that is truly worthy to condemn you and me, Christ Jesus, instead of condemning, what did he do instead? He died for us and he was raised to life for us and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for you and me. So the only person that had the right, the honor, the privilege who is worthy enough to condemn you and me for our sins is Jesus Christ. But he instead chose to not, con not to condemn us, but he instead chose to die for you and me, to be raised to life. And now he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And guess what? He's praying for every single one of us. We can receive that free gift, uh, that free grace gift of God. And if we do, we don't have to walk around defeated. We don't have to walk around saying, woe is me. We can walk around knowing that we are victorious in Jesus Christ. Yes, we may experience pain and suffering and persecution here, but we have a hope of eternal life that far exceeds anything that we experience here and now. We can receive this grace gift. His grace, his grace is greater than our sin. Amen? His grace is greater than our sin. Jesus, the last Adam, he has come to give us life. And he will return again 
So every person that has received the graced gift of God, that is simply received Jesus Christ, we can have the assurance that one day we will spend eternity in God's presence. If you're curious as to how somebody, maybe you know somebody in your life that has maybe experienced bad situation upon bad situation upon bad situation. They're a follower of Jesus Christ, but for whatever reason, every card they draw is just a horrible card. And you're wondering, how do they, how do they continue on? How do they walk around with such joy and with, with such hope and, and love in their hearts? It's because if we truly embrace this reality that if we receive the grace gift of God, Jesus Christ, we can indeed walk around not defeated. But we can walk around knowing that we are victorious in Jesus Christ. And no matter what I experience here, my citizenship here on earth is only temporary. But one day I will spend eternity in God's presence where there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no sickness, there is no difficulty, there, there is no persecution. Instead, there will be people from every tribe, nation, and tongue worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And folks, I would have just, myself included, I would encourage us as believers, let's live our life now with that understanding and reality that one day we're gonna be gathered around the throne room of God. And that may mean there may be days where, where you do draw a bad card and things aren't going well, but let's realize that this life here is only temporary. But let's live in such a way that our life reflects the reality and the truth that you and I, we have a hope in Jesus Christ, that we've received that free, gracious gift of God, the gift of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And if we receive that, you have the promise of eternal life. Jesus, the last Adam has come to give us life and he will indeed return so we can spend eternity in his presence. Worship team, if you wanna come. So I asked this question, I've asked it a few times already during this Advent season. But it's a question that only you yourself individually can answer, can't answer this for you. But it's a question that I want you to wrestle with. I want you to ask God. I want you to, to pray about and really seek an answer. Are you indeed ready for the second advent, for the second coming of Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the Lamb of God, the way, truth, and the life, the last Adam? Are you ready to meet him face to face? I want to end with this story and for those of you that are um, hardcore Lord of the Rings fans, I apologize if I butcher any of these names in advance, because I will. The end of his sermon on Isaiah 9-6, King Langley, pastor of Christ Community Church in Zion, Illinois, shared this powerful thought about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, juxtaposed with the story of Aragorn, in The Return of the King, the final book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The emotional power of Isaiah 9 lies not only in the Messiah's titles, but in their cumulative effect. They are more than their sum. Spoken together or sung, as in the oratorio from Handel's Messiah, they convey a sense of majesty that can't be captured by any one title no matter how lofty. 
The return of the king has a scene that illustrates well what I'm talking about. Aragorn, the rightful king of the West, has long labored in obscurity, foregoing kingly comforts to serve his subjects and fight their battles, repeatedly risking his life for them. At last, he prevails over the forces of the Dark Lord and is poised to enter the city where he will rule at last. And when he enters the fortified city for the first time as king, the city's steward proclaims Aragorn's royal pedigree for all the citizens to hear. And this is what is said. Here is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, chieftain of the Dúnedain of Arnor, captain of the host of the west, bearer of the star of the north, wielder of the sword, reforged, victorious in battle, whose hands bring healing the elf stone, Elisar of the line of Valendil, Isildur's son, Elendil's son of Numenor. Shall he be king and enter into the city and dwell here? There was another king who long labored in obscurity, unheralded, humbly serving the people over whom he had every right to reign, laying down his life for them. Today he claims the throne of our lives. Here is Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the bright and morning star, first and the last victorious in battle, whose hands bring healing, mighty second person of the Trinity, son of David, son of man, word of God incarnate, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And here is the question, shall he enter our hearts, our church, and dwell there? Two questions I have for you this morning, very simply. Number one, am I still living under the umbrella of that first Adam? where I'm overwhelmed by shame, guilt, condemnation, death, and separation from God? Or am I ready or am I presently living under the umbrella of that last Adam where I have received the grace gift, God's very best gift, his son, Jesus Christ. Let me just remind you and say this. This Christmas season, there is no greater gift that you will ever receive. There's no greater gift that you will ever open and say yes to than the gift of Jesus Christ, the Alpha, the Omega, the Lamb of God, the way, truth, and life, the last Adam.